0: The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. But it's good to be with you this morning, and uh, happy Labor Day, happy end of the summer. Uh, Let's enjoy the last remnants together. All right, we're all all back in. Great. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 7 to 14. You'll see the page numbers, the Red Bible and Children's Bible, on the screen behind me. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and grab one on the tables in the back. Um, please, if you don't have one at all, consider that a gift from the church. We'd love for you to have God's Word in your hands to learn and grow and learn about who He is. So. Well, her name was Agnes. I'm sure when her parents named her Agnes, which actually means holy, or set apart they had no idea what was in store for agnes's life the majority of agnes's life was lived in relative obscurity because agnes lived most of her life on the edge of the extremes in our day and age extremes means taking something good and milking it to the nth degree right Run a marathon, 26.2 miles. That's all well and good, but have you run an extreme ultra marathon? For Agnes, though, extreme went in another direction. Extreme for Agnes wasn't about how far she could run, but rather how far others had run out. Because Agnes was called to serve extreme people, alcoholics, AIDS patients, lepers, homeless, naked, displaced, disabled, disadvantaged, disgusting, and disconnected. And she would devote her life to serving these extreme people. You know Agnes not as Agnes. You know her as Mother Teresa. And an interesting thing happened as Mother Teresa gained more notoriety and fame. More and more people, interestingly enough, began to misquote her. People were writing poems and quotes that they hoped Agnes might have said, but she never did. People began to idealize her work they began to flock to Calcutta and to see her, to get a picture with her, to even walk alongside her in her extreme work. And people saw the extreme good in her service to the poor and the desperate and used her as the poster woman for being a better person. She was a source of inspiration. She was the queen of every good person. But the reason Agnes was probably misquoted was because many people didn't really want to hear about what was motivating her to go to these extreme places. They didn't want to hear about how hard she had to depend on her father for strength or how lonely her calling was. They wanted to marvel at what a great person she was and how she inspired people to be great and that same phenomenon happens when we hear the words of today's passage, found in what most of us would call the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to yourself. Some call the golden rule the Mount Everest of ethics, because it's extreme. In today's passage, in our second to last sermon on the Sermon of the Mount, it brings us to the peak of the pinnacle of Jesus' sermon. But thankfully, by God's providence and love for us, his people, he doesn't let us misquote this verse by pulling it out of context, like people did with Mother Teresa, and making it about us. I didn't title the sermon, The Golden Rule, The Way to Being a Better You, on purpose. Agnes's extreme love had a source that came well beyond herself. Behind this ideal persona of Mother Teresa was a human being who knew every day of her life she couldn't survive without her father's help. A father who had adopted Agnes and given her a new name. Without the father, the golden rule like Agnes would be misquoted Misused or misrepresented. So let's read together these verses from Matthew 7, verses 7 to 14, and hear what Jesus has to say about this golden rule. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we approach your word, and as we approach words that are probably familiar to many of us, we pray that you would help us to see a good Father. Father, help us to see these words, not as we would interpret them, but as you would interpret them. And we pray, Father, that you would allow these words to change our motivations for why we do what we do and how we do what we do. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see clearly what you would have to say to us today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you noticed a very critical word in verse 12 of the passage. I tried to highlight it a little bit. And it's the word, so. It's a connecting word. Typically, when you see the golden rule quoted, you don't see verses 7 to 11 as a part of it. Why? Well, it probably wouldn't fit on an inspirational poster. That might be part of the reason. But more importantly, you probably don't see it quoted because the majority of people want to disconnect the golden rule from a heavenly father. Apart from the father, the majority of people believe the golden rule climbing to the peak of Mount Everest is actually possible on your own. Now think for a second where that might lead us. Do to others as you would want them to do to you. Or take the Old Testament equivalent, love your neighbor as yourself. What happens maybe when we disconnect that command from the Father? The first thing that can happen is it can lead to an extreme narcissism or self-love. Let me play it out for you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I love me, so I'll love others like I love me, so they'll remind me how much I love me. This, I think, is at the heart of why many people wanted to follow Mother Teresa around. I'll love that she, I love that she's loved so I can feel good about myself. I'll love like she loved, and then I'll get Love. Well, guess what happens to those that you're loving? They aren't being loved. They're being used and manipulated so you can feel better about you. Another thing that can happen when the golden rule is disconnected from the Father is extreme frustration. The golden rule becomes an ethic of reciprocity or like exchange. I want to be treated nice. So I'll treat you nice, so you treat me nice. And we go about our days being nice to everyone. We open the door for someone and say, after you. We slow down to allow the truck to merge in traffic and say, after you. We pull out the chair at a restaurant for our wife and to sit down and say, after you. But then the person we hold the door open for doesn't say thank you. Or the trucker flips you a signal. Or your wife says, I'm not an invalid. I can get the chair myself. And we get extremely frustrated when other people don't do the golden rule like we do the golden rule. So what is the father proposing instead? He's calling his children, who have been loved to the extremest of measures, to depend upon his love extremely. What does extreme dependence look like for all of us Agneses in the room? Because all of us have been named Agnes. All of us have been called holy by the Heavenly Father. Three things He calls us to. First, He calls us to plead for our need. Second, He calls us to live as we have been loved. And thirdly, he calls us to put our hope in Christ alone. First, our Heavenly Father calls us to plead for our need. Let's start in verse 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. One of the things that can be helpful in studying the original text, is being able to see what gets lost in translation. These three verbs, ask, seek, knock, are what's called iterative imperatives. That's just a smarty-pants way of saying repeated commands. So if we had to translate this phrase accordingly, it would be this, ask, 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 and it will be given to you. Seek, 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 and you will find. You get, you get the point. Moms know firsthand what an iterative imperative sounds like every day, right? Mom, mom, mommy, mommy, mom, mother, mom, 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 mommy, mom, mom, mom. mom. You get it. Jesus is asking us to call upon the Father with this type of insistence, this type of pleading and repetition. Why? Well, why do kids do it to their moms? Because they know their moms love them and will respond, albeit not always favorably, to their needs. Our pleading is an indicator of what we believe about the relationship we have to our Father. And in verse 8, Jesus almost repeats what he just said with, For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Why the repetition in verse 8? Confidence. Confidence that our Father will respond. Confidence in the Father's love for us. Your heavenly Father is always responsive. His love for us is that extreme. He doesn't get to the point where he shouts out, would you stop calling my name? I heard you the first time. What kind of father are you praying to? You're praying to a father who always wants to respond to you. One early rabbinical quote put it this way. The father is as near to his children as ear is to the mouth. Our father loves us with an extreme love and he loves to hear the pleas, Abba, 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 Abba. Day in and day out, night in and night out. He will never refuse our prayers. He always responds to his children's pleas. Not only is God always responsive, he's also generous in his responses to his kids, to his children. He loves to give good things to his children. Look at verses 9 through 11. Jesus says, "Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Any of you ever grow up with a parent who mocked you or was completely unpredictable? Say you were scared at night in your bed and you went to your parents' room to find some comfort and some assurance that you're okay. You went next to the bed and you said, Dad, Dad, I'm scared. And out of your dad's mouth saying, dad, dad, I'm scared. I'm a little scaredy cat. The next night, when you heard a noise downstairs, you were probably less likely to head to his room, right? Jesus in these verses is showing you a father who would never mock or reject your pleas for help. Imagine asking for bread, being given it from your father, and then biting into a stone. It would break your teeth. Or asking for a fish, and your father handing you an eel that stung you. What would you think of your father? He's cruel. And that's how the original audience of the day understood the gods. They were temperamental like that. You never knew what you were going to get from them, no matter how often or how hard you pled your case. But not the Father. Parents in the room, we get what Jesus means when he says, you who are evil, because we know our dark moments as parents when we've mocked or responded with impatient anger instead of love to our kids. But even in our sin... We still love our kids and eventually shower them with birthday or Christmas presents. Think how much more our Heavenly Father loves his children. But what what are these gifts that Jesus speaks of? Material things? Money? A worry-free life? No. In a parallel passage in Luke 11, Jesus gives us a clear understanding of what the good thing is that our Father is giving to us. He says in Luke 11, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The gift we are given is God Himself. Who could ask for anything more? The Holy Spirit, the comforter from the Father, the helper of the Father and the Son, the still small voice of the Father, the translator of the Father's word and voice is at the ready to respond to anything the Father asks him to do for us. We have a Father who is responsive and generous to pleading children by gifting his Spirit to us. What extreme love that he would give us himself. How might knowing this truth maybe change our approach to God? Well, those of us who struggle with prayer, I would encourage us to consider this question. Where do I go consistently for help when I'm stuck or tempted or desperate or scared? Maybe it's my wife. Maybe it's an instructional YouTube video. Maybe it's my favorite author or show or friend. What keeps us from going to our Father with our stuckness, our fear, our desperation, or our temptation? He promises to always answer. He promises to give us His Spirit. Maybe the problem is is that we're not getting from Him what we think is a good gift, like a quick fix or for the dreadful feelings to just go away. Instead, he gives us things like patience or self-control or peace. That's not what we want. So we just stop asking. Let's confess to our Father that we have treated him like a vending machine. Instead, ask that he continue to show us his extreme love by speaking to us through his Spirit, even in spite of our selfish prayers and pleas. Tim Keller says, and I think I've quoted this before, our Father will always answer our prayers, either with what we ask or with what we would ask if we knew everything that He knew. Let's plead our need to our Father, who is always responsive and extremely generous. John Newton wrote a hymn that I took some liberty to contemporize. Sorry, John. Uh, and i just wanted to read it to you in a little more contemporary language come my soul requests prepare your father loves to answer prayer he himself has asked you pray therefore will not send you away you are coming to a king large petitions with you bring for his grace and power are such None can ever ask too much. And when we understand this about our Father, we can approach the golden rule, hopefully with a different set of eyes. We begin by pleading our needs. Now, and not before now, He commands that we live as we've been loved. Look with me at the summit, the peak of the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 12, Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. These words are for the adopted children of the Father, disciples of Christ, followers of Jesus. He's not talking to every man here. That's an important distinction, because if I were to preach verse 12 to anyone who does not claim faith in Christ, I would be giving them only Bad news. And let me explain what I mean by that. You see, for the longest time in ancient tradition, the majority of people understood God's law, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, as a laundry list of mostly do nots. Do not commit adultery. Do not divorce. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. Do not swear falsely. Do not steal. As long as I do not do certain things, I'm loving God by living God's law completely. But Jesus overturns the tables by adding to that do not list this. He says, do also to them as you would have done to you. By saying this, he makes the entire Old Testament law impossible for anyone who has the disease of self at the center. What do I mean? Well, let's think of it maybe in terms of child, a child's obedience. Obedience. This is how a child lives in line with his parents' expectation. And I would say obedience is a measure of love a child has for his parents. Obedience is the measure of love a child has for his parents. So if I ask you the question, when a child does not do something like does not hit their brother or does not steal their sister's toys or does not talk back to their mother, is the child fully loving their parents? What would you say? Some might say, for sure. As long as they're not doing those things, they're obeying me. They're minding me. The scripture here disagrees with those of us who might think this way. If the law were only do-nots, which unfortunately a lot of churches, that becomes the only message getting preached. Then guess who remains at the center of the do-nots? Self. Because if obedience were only about do-nots, guess what I could do? I could lock myself in a room for the rest of my life in complete isolation from everyone else and say, I was loving God by keeping the law, haven't hurt anyone, haven't lied to anyone, haven't stolen from anyone. But Jesus says, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. To those of us who believed we were obedient for keeping all of the do-nots, suddenly we're called out of our locked rooms and asked to actively engage other people. Now, obedience, the measure to which a child loves by living according to their their parents' expectations, it's not just, do not hit your brother. It's also, do comfort your brother when he's crying. It's not just, do not steal your sister's toys. It's, do give your sister your favorite toys. It's not just, do not talk back to your parents. It's, do initiate conversation with your parents. Oh, The golden rule, one commentator puts it, becomes a straight-edge ruler by which we know how crooked we truly are. The reason the golden rule is bad news to those who are not followers of Jesus is because it is an impossibility, just like the rest of the commands in the Sermon on the Mount. Because God's love is not only extreme, God's standards are also extreme. God's standard of obedience is perfection. And our feeble attempts in living the golden rule would pale in comparison to what's expected of you as a child of a perfect heavenly father. Illustrated another way, say I were to ask you to take out your bulletin and draw a completely straight line, as straight as you can on your bulletin from the top of the page to the bottom and then I were to take a ruler and compare your line that you made with a line that I made with a ruler what would you see some of you might actually be thinking mine's mine's pretty good but God's asking for perfect obedience in your life so it's no good it's a complete failure The same goes for the golden rule. How have we loved others by doing love perfectly? Ask your spouse. Ask your kids. Ask your parents. Just ask your conscience. You see, the golden rule is the ruler to show us, like a bright spotlight, our failure to do God's law perfectly. Who here is measuring their performance or obedience to God by all of the sins they have not done? This is one of the challenges of being a Christ follower for a long period of time. We start to measure obedience by don'ts. I don't swear. I don't drink to excess. I don't steal pens from work. And then, in His grace... God's golden ruler comes with questions like, how are we doing at showing compassion to our wife? How are we doing in loving our in-laws? How are we doing with showing mercy to the poor or the flood victim or the grieving or the needy? And then we just start to see the line just get more crooked and crooked and crooked. And our Father needs to remove self from the center of our motivations. And place his perfect son instead at the center. Because Jesus not only kept the do-nots perfectly. He also kept the do's perfectly. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. His perfect son. The father's extreme love gifts us with the son's perfection. And our father's extreme love Had his son take our death penalty and put it on his son. See the golden rule displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Jesus says, in essence, I want them to find in me the love of the Father, so I will do to them the love of the Father by giving them my life. See that extreme love on display? Now go do it. Are we now exempt from the golden rule because Jesus alone perfectly kept the golden rule? Adopted children of God, no, you are not. We are now called to carry the Father's extreme love into this world. But only in Christ's strength and not our own. We can plead to the Father that his Son, who has lived an extremely obedient life, would do whatever it takes to make us perfect. In situations when all you've been following is do-nots, maybe ask him to lead you toward do's. Maybe you do not talk bad about someone that you have serious issues with. Ask him to help lead you to do relationship with that person. Maybe you do not browse those websites that aren't glorifying to Him. Ask Him to help lead you to do use the internet as a resource to glorify Him. Maybe you do not leave your spouse because God says you have to stay. Ask Him to help you do pursue your spouse, even if they may reject you. Live as we have been loved, extremely. By doing love, and not just do-nodding love. And Jesus knows the golden rule is only possible through him. And that's why he closes this passage and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount with a simple question. And it's this. He asks us, Are you going to te- attempt to do all that I've commanded here in this sermon with or without me? Jesus closes the deal He says, it's time to make a decision because the only way we can plead our need to the Father or live as we have been loved is by placing our hope in Christ alone. Let's read the last couple of verses. Jesus says in verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus closes his sermon with a command. Enter by the narrow gate. And most agree that the gate in this passage that Jesus is referring to is himself. The Sermon on the Mount is all about life in the kingdom of God. And in order to be allowed even access into this glorious place called the kingdom of God, it has to be through the gate of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Why does he sound so exclusive? Because he is. And the reason he's so exclusive is that he is the only true son, or child of the Father. The rest of us are adopted. So what does entering through the narrow gate of Jesus look like? Let's talk a little bit about narrowness. Literally, this word means restricted, crowded, compressed, or tight. An image that came to mind that might help us understand what Jesus is communicating is Spelunking through a very narrow cave. For many of us who are claustrophobic in this room, I probably just freaked you out completely. But the thought of being compressed in a confined tunnel of rock for any length of time terrifies you, and for good reason it's dangerous. But access into the kingdom of God without Christ is not just dangerous. It is deadly because the all-powerful, holy God of creation on the other side is holy. And to stand in his presence without the protection of Jesus is complete destruction. Oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? So according to this passage, Jesus says, If you attempt to enter the kingdom of God without the protection of Christ through that narrow gate you will most certainly not survive. God's holiness would consume you because of your sin and your imperfections. So narrow, according to this passage, means a number of things. Hard things. Things I don't want to say this morning. First, it means you can't take anything in with you besides Jesus Those of you who are hoping to enter God's presence on the basis of your own golden rule, Mother Teresa kind of life, you have to leave all of that baggage at the gate. It won't fit through the gate. Second, you have to leave your own reputation or greatness at the gate entrance as well. The only thing that you're claiming that is great is Jesus' reputation. Because in comparison to yours, his is incredible and perfect. The last thing that you're going to have to leave is your love for worldly comfort or things. They don't fit through the gate. Ever been to an airport where someone is asked to remove 10 pounds of weight from their checked bags? And you watch them just scramble to decide, okay, what do we keep? What do we not keep? What do we keep? What do we not keep? Christ is asking you to get on the plane without a checked bag and without even a carry on or a purse. That's why the first part of this passage, pleading to our Father for our needs, is so essential. Entering by the narrow gate is a complete relinquishing of ourselves and a complete putting on of Jesus. And another warning that Jesus gives in this decision-making process is this. Before you enter in, before you go through that gate, I need you to be aware of something. Don't expect the journey into the kingdom of God to be smooth or easy. The way is Hard. You can expect suffering. I think sometimes people mistakenly believe that once they pass through the narrow gate of faith and put their hope in Christ, that their life will open up this wide space filled with rainbows and roses and Christian music piped in from overhead. It might be that for a season, but don't expect it as a norm. Because now that you're living as an adopted child in the kingdom of God, you're an alien, an outsider in this world. And man, does that feel hard and confining. Talk to anyone who struggles with being the only Christian at their workplace. Or the only Christian in their family. Verse 13 reminds us that there will be a majority of people who will think we're crazy for going into that claustrophobic cave. But Jesus warns us that living as an adopted child in the kingdom of God, it's isolating, It's lonely at times, especially when it appears that those living as a child of this world are having a blast. Yesterday, when I was writing this sermon, I was sitting in the basement of the St. Norbert Library alone at 2.30 in the afternoon. The majority of Green Bay was watching the Badgers game either live or on TV. And I was thinking, what a picture of the way the way being hard that leads to life. I, thankfully, I wasn't thinking of myself as a martyr at the time. Sometimes I do that. I wasn't here... I was thinking, this is what it's like to hope in Christ. To be like verse 14 states, the few. While thousands of others are having a great time, beer flowing, brat eating, crowds cheering, sun shining, I'm in a cave with Jesus struggling to write the last few pages of a sermon that's going to be forgotten by this afternoon. What keeps us motivated to keep on? Hope. This is why I titled this sermon, Not the Golden Rule, Becoming a Better You, but rather, Adopted Children. Christ has come to bring life, and life abundantly, to those who would receive his invitation to life. But in order to be adopted by God, he is calling us through the narrow gate to place all of our eggs, all of our hope in the Christ basket. I realize this is an extreme response to our Father's extreme love, but our hope can be built on nothing less than Jesus, His death and His resurrection. And now He asks us, Agneses, for extreme obedience. To take up our cross and follow him. Placing your hope not in the things of this world, but the things of his world. Placing your hope not in this life, but in his resurrection and eternal life. What does this look like, Chad? It may look like sitting in libraries alone during the big game, hoping for the celebration of heaven's crowds. It may be hearing your coworkers belittle your closed-minded Christianity, hoping for the day when what you hear is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Moving through caves of suffering that are dark and cold like grief or rejection or persecution, hoping for the light of heaven to one day come and warm every fiber of your being. Entering the narrow gate of Jesus and following the hard way means hoping that even though following him is difficult, his spirit will be with us and our father will be on the other side saying, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let me close with this. Many people misquoted Agnes because there was something they didn't want to see or say about her. You see, for most of Agnes's life, as she walked the narrow and hard way, Agnes struggled with an incredible sense of darkness as she ministered to the extremes. In letters to spiritual directors, she writes of the torture of loneliness saying, how long will our Lord stay away? She speaks of a great agony of desolation, an agony of separation, of terrible emptiness. Everything is icy cold, she writes. Worship feels empty. But in the midst of this darkness and suffering, she also writes this. I have come to appreciate the darkness. For I believe now that it is a part, a very, very small part of Jesus' darkness and suffering on earth. God has taught me to accept it as a spiritual side of my work. And now I feel a deep joy. Jesus can't go anymore through agony. But he wants me to go through it with him now. More than ever, I surrender myself to him. Yes, more than ever, I will be at his disposal. To live according to the golden rule as an adopted son or daughter of God is to walk the hard way of our perfect brother Jesus, which involves sharing in his sufferings before there's resurrection or light doing the golden rule according to the Father and the Son does not mean everyone will love us. In fact, most will reject us. Are we accepting this reality? or Are we avoiding it by misquoting Jesus or pulling the golden rule out of context? Today, Agnes is being celebrated here on earth. I honestly didn't plan this, but in my research about her, I discovered that today, September 4th, 2016, the Roman Catholic Church is officially recognizing Agnes as St. Teresa. We may differ with the Catholic Church on our views of sainthood, but I thought today's celebration was fitting to this sermon theme. Today, I hope and trust that as Agnes is being remembered as a saint here on earth, she is celebrating in heaven a father who she pleaded with to meet her in her darkness. And she is celebrating a son who has given her the ability to live as she had been loved. And ultimately... The hope that she had in Christ, that she held on to in the midst of darkness, spelunking through the narrow way, is now realized as she stands in the expansive light of her father's extreme love. Let us, Agneses of the world who are still here, adopted children, hang on to hope that like Mother Teresa, like Saint Teresa, we will hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the golden rule is different now for me. I don't look at it the same. I actually look at it with fondness now rather than dread because your son is my perfection. He did what I could not do. And we pray, all of us here, all of us who have been called holy as your children, we pray, Father, that you would move us toward his perfection. That you would lead us to a place where we see that self needs to be abandoned. And we need to walk through this narrow way, this narrow gate of Jesus, knowing that it's going to be hard, knowing that there are sufferings that we will face, but also knowing that our hope one day will be realized when we hear your words well done and when we see your face with unveiled eyes. Give us strength to do what we cannot do ourselves. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our perfection. Amen.